Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator at Womble Bond Dickinson. This episode's a part of the series we're bringing you throughout the rest of 2021, focused on the current and future state of the economy. And certainly a key driver of economy is innovation, and that's really going to be the focus of today's podcast. Uh, We've got an all-star cast uh, with us today, uh, starting with my partner, uh, Dr. Chris Mammon. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with Chris on a number of projects, and we served together on the Innovation Board. Uh, He spent more than 20 years really doing cutting-edge IP litigation patent litigation, technology litigation, uh, a lot of trials throughout the United States. It's a privilege to work with him. And I can say from personal experience, Chris is one of the most innovative uh, people I've ever worked with. So I'm excited to have Chris here. And Chris, why don't I let you introduce uh, the other members of our star panel and tell our audience what they're going to be hearing today. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, Our session today is focused on innovation and intellectual property and in particular, the following broad questions. How do universities foster innovation while protecting and monetizing IP in the global economy? And what trends are we seeing that may strengthen or weaken the US and UK systems? To address these questions today, I'd like to introduce our speakers, Dr. Mari Gibbs and Dr. Rich Lyons. Mari is the Chief Operating Officer at Oxford University Innovation. OUI's portfolio of venture formation, licensing, and consulting activities reflects the full breadth and depth of the university's research and Oxford's thriving ecosystem for new venture formation and entrepreneurship. Mari has particular interests in working with university colleagues to develop the university's innovation framework to meet current and future needs and in change management and professional development of technology transfer staff. She's worked at OUI since 2002 in technology transfer and operational roles, including support for consultancy services, leading IT transformation, facilities, and information compliance. Her extensive practical experience in technology transfer includes partnership management, formation of spin-out companies, licensing, academic outreach, patent portfolio management and prosecution, and management of technology transfer. Mari has a PhD in chemistry and has spent some time in the fine chemicals industry before moving to tech transfer. Rich Lyons is a professor of economics and finance at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, where he served as dean for 10 years. He's been widely lauded for his teaching and leadership contributions to the university. In January of 2020, he became the first Chief Innovation and Entrepreneurship Officer for the University of California, Berkeley. In this new role, Rich oversees development of the campus-wide ecosystem for innovation and entrepreneurship, including patenting and technology licensing. Rich's research and teaching are mostly in international finance, though his more recent work explores how business leadership drives innovation, and the importance of culture in shaping organizations. From 2006 to 2008, he took a leave from Berkeley to serve as Goldman Sachs' chief learning officer, focusing on leadership development for managing directors. He received his BS in finance from Berkeley and his PhD in economics from MIT. We're really honored to have both of you here with us today, 
and I, I want to uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm pleased to announce as well that today's podcast is being jointly sponsored by Womble Bond Dickinson, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, and the Oxford Entrepreneurs Network. Rich and Mari, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, to, to get things going, I'd like to uh, start off with a few questions. Um, first, uh, I'll direct this question to Mari. Can you please describe the formal role your university takes in fostering the innovation economy? Sure. So Oxford's goal really is to maximise the global impact of research and expertise. The goal is not economy per se. That's an output. Um, it's all about getting that research out of the university and getting it used for the benefit of society. Um, and that, that stance is driven by a number of different things. Um, Oxford has charitable status in the UK, so there's an obligation that comes with that to produce a public benefit from our activities. Um, but public benefit and impact is also driven by the UK government through our research excellence framework for research intensive higher education institutions. And that explicitly audits impact as one important factor of what makes a great institution. And then to achieve impact, the UK and Oxford has a, a really broad notion of knowledge exchange. Any mechanism is fine as long as it gets the stuff out there. It's not just spin outs and licensing. It's also consultancy, sponsored research, public engagement, citizen science, museums, libraries, gardens, anything else we can dream up. Um, so there's an astonishing breadth of research interest in the university. It's a huge institution, spans right from humanities through social sciences, medical sciences, of course, and the full range of maths, physical and life sciences. And we have our famous college structure, which builds in a real melting pot for an ethicist or a government specialist to be sitting next to a physicist or an AI person at, at lunchtime. So it's really built for that, that exchange of views and different disciplines. Um, there's been a long investment by the university in its innovation infrastructure. So the university has for quite a long time now explicitly set out to build an innovation ecosystem. And that's been internal investment to support functions like Oxford University Innovation. Also, our colleagues in research services who manage the flow of grants and contracts monies into the university's research functions. Um, that's coupled, of course, with business development teams bringing research funding in, translational funding. Um, we have uh, incubators for startups, business parks, incubator space. Um, and since 2015, we've had Oxford Sciences Innovation, OSI, and that's our investment partner to build um, a rich portfolio now of, of companies and our spin-out portfolio, excuse me, spin-out portfolio raised over a billion pounds in 2020. So um, not much sign of COVID slowdown there. So we have a, a huge knowledge exchange story in the, the vaccine, and that's over a billion doses now, which is just fantastic news for public health. Um, and to make that happen, we had huge involvement from many different parts of the university, literally from the vice chancellor down. Researchers, university leadership, contracts, IP, biomanufacturing, clinical trials support, and of course, many external partners with government, the regulators, AstraZeneca, in order to make that happen. And it was just fantastic that we were able to get that alignment of interest for the global public health. Wonderful. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, and that's, you know, the the uh, the vaccine story is, you know, is a real global success story on that front. Uh, Rich, I wonder if you could uh, give us a little overview of uh, of the formal role that uh, UC Berkeley takes. Sure. Well, it's uh, Mari's answer was outstanding. And, uh, you know, 
the end of the day, it is about impact. She started there. I'll start there, right? Impact. We can talk about long-term impact and so forth. Sometimes people characterize the mission of these great research universities too narrowly. They'll say the mission, the reason we exist is research, teaching, and service. No, the reason we exist is impact, uh, long-term impact. And the way we do that, the how, is really the research, the teaching, and the service. That's really fundamental because if somebody said, no, what you do, the reason you exist is research, teaching, and service. And what you and Mari do is at the periphery. It's like, no, no, no. What we do, the reason we exist is impact. And what we and the teams and the many, many people we work with uh, is right at the center of the university's mission. I think that's a, that's a fundamental point and it's often missed. Um, and so when we think about the kinds of things, well, I, I think about my role and Mari's role would, would be very, very similar as uh, platform building. H how do we sort of extend even further in kind of platform and framework ways the, the, the capacity of our universities to, to deliver on that impact mission? And I could talk a little bit about that. Some of it is financial, some of it is programmatic, some of it is at the level of mission and values. So we can talk more about those things, but but ultimately, you know, we've all of us have got a lot better over the last 10 or 20 years at doing this, and there is still a lot of headroom, so we can talk about that. That's uh, that's really wonderful. Thanks. Um, Mari had mentioned the role of, uh, of OSI as an investment arm uh, working together with OUI. Um, let me sort of take up your invitation to talk further about some of the platform building and in particular the, the financial arm. Is there some sort of an analogous uh, arrangement that, uh, that UC uses? Uh, there is, and it's uh, we tend to be kind of uh, a federated chaos at Berkeley. So, so part of my role is to bring some intentionality to all that innovation that's going on in, in all of those spots. We're, we're not a very centralized place. Um, all that said, uh, I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. One is shared carry funds. This is a new category for us. So these are venture funds uh, like, like Oxford. Berkeley's had a lot of venture capital funds that have been very, very interested and engaged with Berkeley for a long time. But this new category, five years old or so, of shared carry funds, half of the general partners carry, typically 10% of the total carry, the carry being the, the return that's generated by these venture funds. Uh, in these shared carry funds, half of the general partner carry, 10% of the total, comes back to Berkeley directly and gets reinvested in this ecosystem. That's exciting. We're just about to launch shared carry funds number four and five. And so you start adding up the amount of capital. So it's not just capital. It's also dialed into the mission of the university. It creates that feedback loop. Another concrete example of, of financial platform building is uh, we are just launching an equity solutions group. This is equity in the sense of stock, shareholding. So yes, licensing will always be important, um, but if you think about the nonlinear opportunities that the university creates or the societal benefit or the jobs or the wealth, however you wanna frame that, that benefit, um, Berkeley and Oxford need to participate more and more in that nonlinear upside, again, to make sure that these wonderful research institutions have the, the resources to remain vital going forward. So this equity solutions group is thinking about what new channels through which Berkeley can receive equity participation for some of the relationships that it has, not just licensing acquired, not just IP connected, but even more widely research connected and so forth. So those are two examples, shared carry funds and this like equity solutions group that, that we're building new platforms to make sure that we get to the next level. Wonderful. 
Uh, Mari, let's turn to you and, and sort of the inter interplay between OUI and OSI, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how these arrangements and other arrangements are also serving to uh, help bring resources to the university for ongoing research investment and reinvestment in the ecosystem. Sure. Um, so OSI has had a fantastic catalytic effect really in, in the Oxford ecosystem. So when it was raised, it was the, the huge sum of money that was raised, £600 million, dedicated to spin-outs from Oxford and, and this area. And so that produced a great upswing in interest from the research community, where previously they might have had to go out and scout around many investors before they found one that was willing to take a, a punt on this early stage technology. All of a sudden, there was an Oxford one with a friendly face willing to go and talk to them at a really early stage and to help them to build the business plans um, and provide a a very direct route into investor thinking, if you like, at those very early stages of building business plans. So it had a great catalytic effect within the university and our spin-out numbers jumped from 8, 10, 12 per year up to 15, 20 within the first year of OSI being in Oxford. Um, so that was something to behold here. But also it's had this great catalytic effect in bringing other money into the Oxford area in that it has stimulated other interests from other investors. OSI do not want to have an exclusive thing here because there is more opportunity than any one investor can get their arms around, actually. So it's all about generating that interest, making other investors sit up and take notice. Well, if OSI is able to raise that sort of sum of money for investing in Oxford, maybe we'd better come and take a look as well. And so we've seen a uh, growth in the diversity of types of funds coming to Oxford for investing at perhaps an earlier stage than they, they might have done previously. And they co-invest with OSI, sometimes they'll take it themselves. So that's been a, a hugely positive thing for Oxford. Fantastic. Now we've both, uh, we've all been talking a little bit about the the ecosystem and the community. And, and I think have all been using that in a, in a sense that's broader than just the formal university structures. Uh, if I could ask each of you, maybe Mari first, to describe some of the other players um, in that broader ecosystem. When you, when you talk about the ecosystem or the community, what kinds of institutions or organizations or individuals are you uh, referring to? Sure. So, um, so first of all, we, we have two universities in Oxford and one of them gets all of the headlines, um, but the other one is also a fine, a fine research institution. And so we have Oxford Brooks University in Oxford as well. Um, so universities, yes. And then we also have um, down the road at uh, Harwell Campus and Cullum, uh, maybe 15, 20 miles south of Oxford city centre, which probably would still put them within the Bay Area, you know, if we were in California in terms, but you have to go past fields to get there. It feels quite far from Oxford. Um, but there's the big UK Atomic Energy Authority's research station there. And that, together with the science and business parks around Oxford, um, we have loads of startups, growing tech ventures, lots of big name players. Uh, there's all the associated service providers that you would expect to find, the lawyers, the accountants, the recruitment agents, all of that, that helps to make a, a business sector buzz. And of course, Oxford University is a, a part of it, and we, we like to think that we're at the heart of it. And the spin-outs themselves employ many thousands of people in the local area, but it isn't just a story about the university. Um, we do licensing and spin-outs, of course, and we have 
consultancy that our researchers can do in their outside appointment days, which is a great mechanism for them to share their expertise with all sorts of different businesses that will benefit from it. Um, we've got thriving biotech, engineering, software, big data, AI type sectors, and local government has played a, a really important role in this as well. Excellent. And do you find that the uh, the spinouts are increasingly staying located in or near Oxford? Yeah, absolutely. So 90 plus percent of them stay pretty close to Oxford, not necessarily right in the city centre, but certainly in the Oxford area. Um, then as they grow up, some of them migrate maybe to the States or to other, other locations. But um, certainly for the early years, a lot of them stay very local. And we have some quite large companies in the Oxford area that started out as spin-outs. Oxford Instruments is one from the 1950s. <laughs> Fantastic. Rich, how about uh, the ecosystem uh, around Berkeley? Yeah, and similarly, you know, the Silicon Valley more generally and uh, Emeryville, which is very close to us, or, you know, Mission Bay, as they call it, in San Francisco for, for life sciences, uh, innovation, incubation, et cetera, in the University of California, San Francisco. Um, I, I guess one way to think about it, to, to expand on that, is that there's a geographic frame on, on the question, and Mari's answer is is outstanding. There's also kind of a stakeholder frame, like who, who are the players, right? There are different ways of, of addressing this question. Maybe I'll take a, a, I think, complimentary view on what Mari mentioned and talk a little less about Silicon Valley and geography and a little bit more about, you know, who's involved. And, and I'll start this by starting with uh, a, a friend and colleague who won a Nobel Prize just a little over 10 years ago at, at Berkeley. My field's economics, and he won it in economics. His name is Ollie Williamson. What he won his Nobel Prize for was the boundaries of the firm or the boundaries of the organization, a university included. It doesn't have to be a, a company. And one way that I would describe this, it would be just as true at Oxford, is that the boundary around Berkeley, right? So when we talk about ecosystem, what's, what's outside? How does Berkeley interact with the outside? No, the boundary of what we call Berkeley is getting fuzzier, fuzzier for really productive reasons. And I'll give you a concrete example here. But I think that our interoperability as a university has changed very fundamentally. Um, here's a super concrete example. If you have further questions, I'm happy to talk about it. But we just launched something called the Berkeley RIC, the Research Infrastructure Commons. So again, I'm an economist. We talk a lot about the share economy, right? The built environment. And we're not using all the built environment the way we should, or we own vehicles and we use them 2% of the time. There's got to be got to be a better way to do this, right? We've seen the economy evolve a lot that way. What is the capacity utilization of a mass spectrometer or a DNA sequencer on the weekend at Berkeley. Often not very high at all. How do we create like a DocuSign super efficient way for startups in our ecosystem to access that instrumentation? Fee for service feeds back into the research capacity of Berkeley, does not crowd out the mission of the university, right? That takes precedence. But how do you open up that boundary? So that startups want to be right there, you know, and imagine it being an app on your phone. So, so this is part of, I mentioned platform building earlier, building platforms that create even more interoperability with Berkeley is part of what we're trying to do for our stakeholders of, of many different types. That's so interesting. Um, and, the, you know, the, the mind boggles at being able to get access to some of the major university resources uh, during during slack times and that's a it's a fantastic idea um, 
I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, though, and, and talk about what the university does to encourage commercialization. Uh, Mari touched on that a bit with just the increased availability of resources through OSI and then other investors. Are there other things that, uh, that the universities do to encourage primary researchers or students or others involved with the university to commercialize the ideas that they have or the, or the business plans that they may come up with? Um, Mari, why don't we uh, turn to you first? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love this concept that you mentioned about a fuzzy boundary to the university. And we, we definitely relate to that in Oxford as well. Um, I've got some things to learn from you about branding of these great programmes, I think. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are so many different aspects that go to encouraging innovation by university staff and, and students. And it, it needs a clear policy framework. It needs some buy-in from senior leadership and a commitment to building that culture and strategy of, of innovation. You need some skilled support people in order to support those activities. It's, there are some researchers who can do it all by themselves, but you do much more of it with good support. Um, you need fantastic research, cross-disciplinary research teams trying to solve really big problems, because if you haven't got anything fundamentally interesting, that's going to make it difficult to shout about it in the world. So that for sure is super important. And then there's some really mechanistic things to do with financial incentives of royalty sharing and equity and um, mechanisms for outside appointment days, all of, all of that. So that's it's terribly practical, but it's really important because that's how the researchers actually see a return for their time on, on doing this. Um, there's some other mechanistic things to do with supporting individual programmes, translational funding to help shift it from that early stage blue sky work to something that's a little bit more de-risked from a commercial perspective. Um, we try and celebrate success. So we have a Vice Chancellor's Innovation Awards. Um, we have a programme that was just really getting going about diversity. It's called the IDEA programme, trying to encourage a greater diversity in our entrepreneurial system, um, more female entrepreneurs, better diversity across the whole, whole range of the engagement. Um, and we do periodic reviews. And if we think of anything else that we need to be doing, then we build some consensus and try and make it happen. Um, so there's lots of different angles to it on the sort of mechanistic, the financial side, the people side of things, winning minds and hearts as well. Thank you. Uh, Rich, anything to add to that set of actions? Yeah, I agree with, with what Mari just said. I'll, I'll give you one example, and Oxford probably does something similar. About 10 years ago, it was philanthropically enabled, but we, we started something called the Baker, B-A-K-A-R, Fellows Program. And these are uh, very substantial grants that faculty, mostly STEM faculty, uh, compete for. And it's to fund translational research. It's to get faculty thinking about downstream commercialization, not necessarily to get faculty to become entrepreneurs themselves, but the idea is getting this stuff projected into society is what we do as a university. And so you can think of that as, oh, yeah, OK, so we have a funding mechanism, too. No, 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 no. This is as much about culture change as it is about funding. Right? This is about these people are called out. They are when they went. So we had 42 faculty who applied for it. We do these uh, once a year. Uh, we could only award seven or eight of them. 
So over, over 10 years, we've got about 80 of them and they're among our most entrepreneurial faculty and they're on a pedestal and they should be and they're, they're serial entrepreneurs and it's sort of like, hey, this is a good thing. So within the departments, faculty are seeing these people. So this isn't something that you hide from other people. This is something we're proud about as an institution. So I just I want to emphasize the, the, the culture, the mindset shift of yes, impact is the goal. And these people are remarkable scholars and getting very good at, at thinking about translation as well. Let's um, turn to intellectual property rights, uh, and in particular patenting as, a, as part of that effort. Uh, as a uh, IP lawyer, in the, largely in the private sector over the past 20 years, one of the things that we often come across, or I've often come across in, in my practice, is the challenges of in-house lawyers getting the scientists at R&D firms to engage in invention harvesting, to, to think about not just doing their research and developing nifty stuff, but then reporting those through invention disclosure forms to the in-house counsel, uh, thinking about getting patents on stuff. Um, wondering what kinds of culture change or culture development you're both seeing or actively engaged in to try and get some of that invention harvesting mindset into the, the uh, primary researchers. Uh, Rich, you want to take that one first? Sure. It's a big question. It's an old question and, and it's still a complicated question. I mean, one of the things that I would mention is when you hire somebody into a role like that, at least my experience is, uh, Mari's been doing this longer than I have. Um, the job description tends it will trend, it changes. So if you say, you are all about harvesting, connecting, that's your job description. And then they start getting involved in licensing negotiations and lots of other things, right? So the idea is, no, we need people that are dedicated to this and like doing only this, and we wanna protect this and we need to get better at this. And um, so that that's one of the things, is this kind of this structural trend against keeping this strong. And, and so we're trying to be more intentional about that in how we fund, you know, further slots for this. One other concrete example around how to do this. Um, so we just created a set. This is mostly kind of biotech focused, but an uh, Oxford probably has something similar to it. But we just opened up, uh, we're calling them innovation fellows, right? So the, the venture capitalists have employed undergraduates as scouts for innovation in, at universities for a long, long time. But we just created this innovation fellowship open to doctoral students or postdocs. And the idea is, let's get the buy-in from the, from the leaders of the labs themselves so that they actually have access. So these are people with scientific credibility and kind of a, an access to what's going on in the labs. Now, at some point before an invention disclosure form has been filed, you don't want to provide too much access. So you can understand why there's some sensitivity around this. But we, we're hoping that this combination of the right talent coupled with, with a higher level of access that somebody who's not anointed by the system to do this, that we can push this qualitatively further. Fantastic. Mari, how about at Oxford? Yeah, so it, it's a really interesting question when to patent. Um, and we you know, absolutely do the, the out, outreach into the university. We, we don't go and do 
technology audits, you know, where you sit down with, with a researcher and you say, tell me about everything that you've done, because it, it's just not going to produce a very good outcome. But we try and make enough noise in the university that we hope that everybody will know how to find us and we'll go and do, you know, regular drop-in sessions at individual departments and sessions for new starters and termly, you know, uh, IP awareness type sessions and as much of that sort of broad education as we can find so that anyone who's interested always knows how to find us that's that's the goal um, now in the UK we have a first to file system when we don't have a grace period and researchers love to publish so always when we're doing our outreach type work we're saying please come and talk to us early because we never want to tell them they can't publish then we're getting in the way of their academic mission that's death to a good relationship here. So the goal is to get them to come and talk to us early enough, maybe when they're just pulling the, the research together into first shape for a first draft of a publication. That's ideally when we want to be talking with them so that we can then get ourselves organised, do our disclosure assessment, get a patent attorney involved, get something drafted so that it can be filed in good time before that first publication. Now, the trend towards open access makes things more difficult because a lot of the journals now publish preprint online immediately on acceptance. So the time points that keep coming further back for us. Um, but we do not too many emergency swerve filings on 24 hours notice. Um, so a bit of notice is a good thing. Um, we do some other um, particularly copyright work. Trade secret is sort of difficult in a university context um, because of the publications thing. Um, not completely impossible, but quite difficult. But we do lots of copyright work, particularly on software and also health outcomes questionnaires. We have a thriving licensing business dealing with, with those things which are licensed to clinicians and hospitals for monitoring the progress of patients' um, clinical symptoms. Um, so yeah, patenting, but it, it's always a tool. It's always a tool. Um, and we try and protect as appropriate to the nature of the research output and what the researcher wants to do with them. That's important as well. And the goal is impact. And then if we get it right, then the financial return is a useful output along with the, the impact. Rich, you want to add to that? I totally agree with that. And I just something popped into my head that I thought I would say, because the culture within the university, for example, are life scientists. They're used to patenting and they understand the process. You know, our computer scientists, at least at Berkeley, it's like we're an open source world, folks. You know, we this is the way we do things. And then, you know, the question is, can we without creating friction in the system, can we patent it so that we have at least some control about how this is used and how it's bundled? We're not we're not talking about financial return and frictions. We're just but still patents can be very helpful for the university and for society. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to point out, and of course, the university is more than just life science and computer science, but the culture across our faculties is very, very different. We have the same in Oxford as well. And again, I think for us, education is the key because open source licenses are not all alike. And so we try and say to the researchers, well, look, it's possible to release this stuff on open source licensing that enables other researchers to use it for free. That's fine. We don't want to constrain that. But it's possible to do that on terms which still reserve the rights for you to charge somebody who wants to use it commercially. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a really important uh, part of the uh, process of educating primary researchers on, on some of the, the various aspects of IP protection and the, the, all the different flavors that, uh, uh, that one can come up with. Um, this has been uh, 
fantastic discussion over the past 20 or 30 minutes. And um, I want to sort of close with one future looking question. We've talked a lot about all the fantastic things that both universities are doing. Uh, let me close with a question about what you see looking to the future. What is the one biggest challenge you face in the uh, near to intermediate term to continuing to grow the role of the university in the innovation economy? That's all the time we have, Chris. Thank you very much for your question. <laughs> Uh, is that a volunteer to, to go first, Rich? I, I'm happy to go first. Uh, I love the question. Thanks. You know, I there's progress at Oxford and at Berkeley on so many fronts. So I'm, I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic about the way this is going. Uh, at the same time, things like, can a faculty get an extra year beyond the first year, which is easy, to go on leave to start a company, Right. And the department, you know, the chair of the department says, I need somebody to teach this constellation of courses, right? So it's really costly for certain players within the university for faculty to be able to go on leave, not necessarily as CEOs, but but to help a company roll. And and so three years is is the kind of leave that, you know, often Berkeley doesn't doesn't allow. And so it's it's things like privilege and tenure and how long are the leaves? And, you know, we can talk about culture change, culture change, but at the end of the day, there are these frictions that are pretty hard and we're still having the conversation. It's, it's, it, sensible people can disagree, but that this is, this is an area that, that will take some more conversation. Okay. Mari, last word on this. I, I totally agree. You know, we have huge ambitions and there's huge expectations. So the challenge is scale. Um, for me. And there's all sorts of different aspects to that. People, space, time, money, all of that. You know, Oxford's a wonderful medieval city that wasn't built with a big population and modern transportation in mind. So just on, on one of those little angles. Um, but we have to be able to scale without losing that fundamental wonder of this great research institution. It's fabulous teaching. It's fabulous research. Um, so we need to enable this innovation goal to happen in parallel, in synergy with curiosity-driven research that's super important. And, you know, we have all of the same challenges that Rich just outlined in terms of how, you know, it's wonderful for the impact and wonderful for the individual to go off on sabbatical to, to their spin-out company. But what happens to running the research group that's left behind? What happens to the teaching? So we also are in conversations about, about those. And there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of determination to try and find the ways through it, but these are challenges that come with scale. If it's one faculty member in every 50 doing it, you can just absorb it in the rest of the noise. But when it's a bulk pursuit that all researchers are engaged in or a very high proportion of them, you have to engage with this. Uh, thank you both of you very much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. I feel like we could go on for another 30 or 60 minutes and uh, continue this fantastic discussion. Uh, but uh, it's time to wrap up. So really appreciate your time today and uh, encourage everyone to, uh, to continue to tune in to the in-house roundhouse podcast series. 
Mark, you want to bring it home? I, I will. Thank you. This has been a fantastic discussion. So thank you so much. And thanks for, for orchestrating it, Chris. I appreciate it. Rich and Mari, terrific uh, contributions and a lot to think about. So I think you've really given our listeners an insight into what's happening in these both very exciting universities. And I've certainly, I've certainly enjoyed it. Since I have two such uh, engaged and smart people, I can't help asking if you what you see is maybe the next big area. I know there's been a lot of focus on, uh, you know, a lot of life science and biodevelopment as well as AI. Um, but I'm wondering what may be around the corner. You know, what would be, you know, in five years, the new AI or genetic modification or, you know, mRNA or whatever. You know, I, I always wonder if you got, I think you're closer to that early in that, in, in the innovation chain. I'm just curious if, if you've got Oxford predictions. Oxford is mobilizing on climate um, yeah. because climate is going to affect everything. It affects the economics, there's the ethics of access to things like water and a temperate climate to live in. Um, health is about climate. Climate is about to be everything. Yeah, important answer. I, I think, uh, you know, con consistent with that and consistent with something Mari said earlier, um, it's, it's convergence. So we've just created a, you know, a really large, uh, convergence incubator. So it's life science mashed up with engineering. It's life science mashed up with, with AI. It's, it's hard tech, tough tech, all these terms, but it's about, it's about the mashups. It's not about, is it going to be quantum computing, right? I'm not, not to take away from quantum computing. That may well be one of, but, but it's sort of like people is, we've been talking about interdisciplinary for a long time, but I think people are saying, no, that the magic is in the mashups and, and it, exactly where in the mashups we're not sure but uh creating institutional platforms for for mashing up is is what we're working on awesome great info i i hope it gets a i expect it will get a broad audience and it deserves it you two are terrific and i love the i love the dynamic of these two great institutions uh being presented together it's really got that that terrific global feel I do want to remind listeners you can subscribe to the podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I also welcome questions about this episode and suggestions for future topics. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station. Please note that Oxford Sciences Innovation has changed its name to Oxford Science Enterprises since this podcast was originally recorded.